Hello, I'm Joe Glenton, and this is Series 3 of the Warrior Nation podcast, where, over the coming episodes, we'll be unpacking the complex relationship between war and memory, covering statues, mental health, and everything in between. Today, I'm joined by Maya Jasanoff, a professor of history at Harvard University, specialising in empire, and author of Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World. Maya Jasanoff, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Great. I just wanted to um, to kind of open up this discussion. Um, and I think you'll be very aware of this. In the UK, we sometimes struggle with talking about our own empire um, and it can lead to all kinds of strange um, spectacles. And there's a sense that there's almost two parallel empires. There's the empire, which is kind of tolerable, which is pith helmets and adventure and is kind of wholesome and good. And that's the one we're generally taught in schools or a, or a, a kind of fairly bland version of empire, which is basically benevolent. But then at times it's almost like the topsoil is scraped back and there's this other narrative of empire, which is much darker, which is trying to emerge. And I suppose the times we see that are around things like the Roads Must Fall campaign, the statues being toppled in Bristol. I live in Liverpool, that's where we're coming to from. And we, you can walk around Liverpool and you see streets named after slave owners and businessmen and, and buildings and so on. And I suppose what I'm getting at is what are the, what are the forces at play here behind these two colliding narratives of what British empire means, what it was? Well, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that the narratives that we produce about history are, of course, overlays on the history that actually happened. So, you know, in part, I think what's going on is that aspects of what actually happened have been sort of suppressed over the years in the creation of a narrative for a British public that is deliberately trying to exclude certain kinds of realities. And, you know, sometimes those realities were understood at the time by Brits. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the process of writing history and above all of shaping public narratives is as much about sort of erasure as it is about remembering and recollecting. Now, clearly what's going on behind all of this, and this can be seen in pretty much any nation's kind of imaginary, historical imaginary, is that there's kind of ways in which history is being used in order to mirror or shape an image that the nation wants to have of itself. And there's been, apparently, over the last decades in Britain, a successful uh, public teaching of history, uh, by successful, I mean, it's what happens in schools, that um, is essentially, as far as I see it, supporting an extremely kind of nationalistic and uh, one-sided vision of a much more complex and, compli- and, and challenging imperial past. Sure. It's, it's an argument that's often rolled out by people on, on one side of this debate, constantly, constantly in this country. Maybe it's the same in the US. We can't judge those events by the standards of today. But I, I'm always struck by the fact that, of course, those Many of those things, slavery, imperialism, colonialism in India, for example, were resisted at the time. There was a critique. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, this notion that somehow, you know, it's only in the 21st century that people suddenly realize that slavery was bad and no one did in the 18th century is ludicrous. So, you know, I mean, behind all of this is lurking the idea of politicization. And, you know, I would just say that it's not unique 
necessarily to one political disposition throughout history to want to champion a particular kind of vision. I'd say rather it's more kind of tied up with nationalism and national pride. But, you know, obviously now in the 2020s, um, we are seeing a great deal of politicization and a kind of desire to, you know, champion one vision of the past by, by one side of the political spectrum and a desire to have a more, as far as I'm concerned, fair and um, clear-eyed vision of that past on the other side. Sure, sure. There's another thing I just want to try and tease out there because I think now people on the left particularly like uh, the defenders of empire are are all Tories and it's a kind of lazy thing. Of course, there was a, a liberal imperialism as well, wasn't there? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to trace the rise and fall of liberalism historically and also the term liberal, which, you know, has come particularly when it's with a capital L referring to the liberal politics and the liberal party of the 19th and to the early 20th centuries, has come to be sort of a pejorative. And we see this um, in the US as well as in the uh, in the UK. And I think one of the things that really did it in, um, in recent memory is the invasion of Iraq, which, you know, Tony Blair was promoting in language that would not have been unfamiliar to William Gladstone, the great, quote unquote, great liberal prime minister of the later 19th century. So I think that um, liberalism with a capital L represented, liberal imperialism represented an approach to empire, which, you know, for many people in the 20th and early 21st centuries had sort of appeared for a while to be the kind of nice version, the version that was in favor of, you know, freeing the slaves and in favor of developing infrastructure and was in favor of having more of a kind of light footprint. And one of the things that scholarship has helped to uncover over the last decades is that, well, I mean, you know, the nice form of imperialism, but but it's still imperialism and it's really bound up. You know, we see this in in the 19th century, especially with with capitalism and with the interests of businesses. And so, if anything, it's this kind of form of liberal imperialism with the capital L that we see kind of versions of still ongoing today. What we also have in in this country, particularly (laughs) due to our profound attachment to empire, and we we see it around World War II as well, particularly, and I think particularly after Brexit, whatever your position is on Brexit, I think we can all admit that that it's coloured by World War II, but also a kind of nostalgia for empire. And nostalgia is something that comes across in British politics. So many things now, Brexit, Scottish independence, COVID even, are all couched in terms of this kind of nostalgia. Um, And it can be quite nebulous, I think, to pin down. But do do you recognise that as well? Do you see that? I do. I mean, I just would want to maybe gloss Britons when you're talking about it. I mean, that is, I'm assuming that, you know, among Black British and Asian British communities, the sense of the imperial past is a little bit different. Um, And so, you know, I mean, again, I, I, I think that there's forms of nostalgia for empire that you can find maybe on the left and the right. But, you know, we we would do well probably to nuance this in terms sure. of what kinds of Britons in terms of class and race you know, we're talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, from an outside perspective, the incredible sort of cult of Churchill in World War II that has seems to just get bigger and bigger by the years, um, you know, is is really remarkable and so fictitious. I mean, not fictitious in the deep sense that, you know, obviously Britain was on the right side in World War II, but, you know, it's extremely limited. And the idea that has made it into popular consciousness is of, 
the, the solitary island with its exceptional, extraordinary leader standing up to the Nazi menace. I mean, there's truth to that, but that's really only part of a, of a world war, a world war in which Britain was also obviously, um, you know, fighting against Japan and fighting in Asia and was way less successful than it was in the war against Germany and in which that great, charismatic, exceptional leader, etc., had very, very different attitudes about the best way to proceed. Sure, sure. And of course, Churchill, I think sometimes they gloss over it, was himself a product of imperialism. He was at the um, relief of Khartoum, the, the attempt to relief Khartoum, when Gordon was uh, killed a few years later, wasn't he? And he served on the Northwest Frontier. So he's very much a, a kind of product of that as well, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. You get this late Victorian Tory imperialist running the war against Nazi Germany. You know, it's sure. it's like two big historical phenomena kind of running together. And, you know, Churchill's great gift was that uh, he was dogged in his beliefs about what was the right thing to do. And when it came to fighting the Nazis, he was right. And when it came to wanting to hold on to the empire, he was wrong. And that's it comes out in the, in the work of some historians. I think David Edgerton's written about it. The, I suppose there's the idea of brave Britain stands alone. And then there's the reality that Britain at that time was still a global empire. Do you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. You know, David Edgerton's work has been so important, I think, in recent years and in adding nuance to this period. And the idea that Britain is this plucky little island by itself is nonsense. I mean, you know, without the empire, Britain could not have waged the war effort that it did. You know, India alone had a standing army that was bigger, you know, than than most any, I mean, there were some other larger standing armies in the world, but it was one of the largest in the world. And it was the resources of the empire that uh, Britain was able to mobilize in order to wage the effort it did in, in Europe and North Africa, and of course, in Asia. Sure, sure. And I just want to come on to some of your work, particularly your book on uh, Joseph Conrad. And I'd like you to unpack a little bit what that's about, and maybe tell us um, what it can tell us today about empire and imperialism and the people it produces. Yeah, so I was drawn to write about Joseph Conrad partly because of that kind of um, dichotomy of visions of empire that you laid out right at the beginning, which is that you know, when we think about the British Empire sort of you know, popularly, colloquially in the, in the 19th century, nowadays we might come up with the kind of empire that was lauded and described by Rudyard Kipling white man's burden, you know, all of these kinds of ideas. And I was struck to kind of notice that, you know, at the very same time that Kipling is writing these anthems of imperialism, which are, you know, quoted and repeated down to this day, there was another person who was writing about empire as well, who was giving us a completely different image. And that person was Joseph Conrad, who in his novella, Heart of Darkness, offers the biggest you know, most kind of resonant and impactful um, critique of the European civilizing mission that had been written up to that time. So I wanted to understand in a way, you know, what it would be like to look at the empire through Conrad rather than through Kipling. And to do that, I realized, was to enter into a much more kind of complex vision of the world in which, among other things, 
you know, the British imperial pink on the map, you know, covering a lot of the world as it did, was only one of the many colors, you know, coloring the map. There were the French, there were the rising Americans, there were the Germans, there were the Japanese, the Russians, etc. Um, it was also to enter a world in which, you know, borders were crossed in different sorts of ways. Conrad himself being an adoptive Briton, whose name at his birth was Józef Theodor Conrad Korzeniowski. He, he was Polish, right? I just want to clarify, because yeah. I didn't know any of this. Exactly. So, you know, we had we just have a very different set of things emerging from Conrad. Again, another example would be that whereas Kipling, for example, wrote, you know, very importantly and richly and movingly about British India, which is where he was born, um, and then spent time in South Africa and, and, and elsewhere in the in the um, in the dominions. Conrad is writing about parts of the world that, you know, have Brits in them and have a lot of Europeans in them, but are not necessarily parts of the formal British Empire. He's writing about the frontiers of what we would today call globalization, you know, where foreign capital is moving into places and having an impact and so on, but where it's not necessarily totally aligned with this kind of military occupation and direct governance. Sure. I just want to um, draw on one of you. You've written um, a bunch of articles, which I recommend everyone goes and reads for The Guardian, a lot of stuff about Brexit. And I suppose the intersection between empire and Brexit is very is very strongly represented in those pieces. But I'm, I'm very interested in Pakistan at the moment, because maybe going out there, um, another country that the British arguably, could be argued, made a bit of a mess of. And there's something very, very interesting which you wrote in one of your articles. For reckless and destructive haste, uh, as Pankaj Mishra has observed, the rush to leave the EU resembles Britain's destructive 10-week scramble to pull out of India and Pakistan in 1947. And I'd love you to unpack that and talk about that a little bit for us. Yeah, so, I mean, I was struck in the in the Brexit, one of the many rounds of Brexit <laughs> negotiations, et cetera, at the way in which imperial analogies were being invoked by different sides. And, of course, the, the Brexiters were championing this idea of independence, we're declaring independence, and it had this kind of American Revolution sort of feel to it. But if you want to look for imperial analogies, there are other kinds of imperial analogies you could look at. And, you know, one of the things that happened in the negotiations was, of course, that at a certain point, they simply said, okay, here's going to be the deadline, and we're going to get out by this time. And, you know, everyone will remember all that brinksmanship about the, you know, the cliff, and are we going to get leave with no deal, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think that, you know, and I mean, one kind of obvious point, but it deserves repeating, is that imperial history is a big and complex thing that unfolded across hundreds of years in many, many different places and involved billions of people throughout history that were wrapped up in it. And one of the more recent analogies that perhaps could be drawn um, is not to declaring independence from something, which is after all what the American colonies did pulling away from the British Empire, but rather um, the, the ways in which Britain severed ties, not always willingly, with its colonies in, in the 20th century. And in, in the case of India and Pakistan, you know, this is a great example of where we just need richer and more complex narratives, because there's an extremely cliched view that says, look, you know, Britain built the railroads, and then we left and gave them independence and gave them constitutional democracy, et cetera, et cetera. But a richer picture of this would say, hey, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, you built the railroads and you also took out, you know, huge amounts of money and lots of people were killed throughout this. And then in that process of 
giving them over to constitutional democracy, quote unquote, what happened? Well, Britain decided to leave on this unbelievably short timetable with the result that violence, which they knew was going to happen because it was already happening between Hindus and Muslims across different parts of this border that was incredibly hastily drawn, that they knew that was going to happen. And Another analogy that, of course, comes to mind right now is the Afghan withdrawal. But, you know, they, they did not do things that could have mitigated that, that could have alleviated the pain and ultimately the catastrophic um, death toll and suffering that happened in that in that moment. Um, I want to come to the Afghan withdrawal now because I not too long ago reread sections of uh, William Dal- Dalrymple's Return of the King, beautifully written book about the, the British withdrawal. Uh, and I recall... Lots of people were looking at the Afghan withdrawal, the chaos of the pullout and going, Saigon, 72, 73. And I, I looked at it and I kind of, uh, which Joe Biden denied very quickly. He says there's no parallel. Uh, and I looked at those analogies and I felt they they just somehow felt a little bit too easy. And I suppose it comes to your point of history being complex and empire being complex. Um, can we just unpick that? The Are there actual parallels between those two events, the Brits in 42, 1842, and the withdrawal from Saigon of the Americans in the early 70s? And the with, you know, where does the truth end and the, and the fiction and the lazy reaching for just off-the-shelf analogies start? Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the people who like to make the analogy with 1842 when the British withdrew and lots of them died and so on are, you know, tend to belong to the school that say, oh, you know, the Afghans are a people who will never allow themselves to uh, be ruled. Graveyard by of empires and all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, look, obviously there's some historical truth to the fact that there, that there has been a series of invasions by outside powers that have ended in their um, withdrawal. But I think that you know, I, I I would reject the analogy in the sense that, I mean, first of all, you know, that withdrawal in 1842 was one in which, you know, the British were killed in very large numbers. The, the withdrawal in the, in, in the recent months, of course, the, the fear has been that Afghans themselves are going to be killed. So that's a different, you know, we have to just make that clear from the outset. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the graveyard of empires lesson ought to have been not to invade at all. I mean, that is that the, uh, you know, these unbelievably arrogant ideas about nation building, I think, were just so um, off base from the outset. And I think that, you know, I was so struck by the media frenzy in the U.S. in August when, frankly, it seemed to me that it was only in this moment that the press decided to realize that, hey, actually, this whole thing had been misbegotten. Um, and they were very reluctant to accept that the whole thing had been misbegotten because they had championed it all the way through. And then suddenly they're, 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 they're saying, oh, you know, it's the greatest humiliation to America, et cetera, et cetera. Well, why don't we look at what's been going on there for, for a very long time? So there's that. With respect to Saigon, I mean, another thing, it's like, you know, I, I, would, I would distinguish the short term from the long term in some pretty important ways. The long term thing is that American efforts to assert a particular vision of a political order in other countries at the force of a gun, of a gun you know, at gunpoint is a really dubious exercise. Vietnam showed that, Afghanistan shows that, Iraq shows that, and you'd think that maybe there might be some backing away from the desire to do this kind of thing. Now, in the short term, I do think that 
to go back to the India-Pakistan analogy, I mean, clearly in the short term, one can point to various ways in which, you know, greater efforts can be done to draw out certain, you know, allies, et cetera, et cetera. But fundamentally, I just think that this hand-wringing about the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is really hand-wringing about a failure on the part of the Americans in this instance, obviously in past episodes, the British, to be able to, you know, swing into a place without a lot of knowledge about it, assert their own vision of how they want things to go and assume that it's going to stick. Sure, sure. I remember very, um, it was actually after I served in Afghanistan in 2006, years later, uh, Mike Martin, who is a major, a very smart guy, speaks <laughs> Pash to the kind of guy you would want on the ground, pointed out that um, in the South where they sent us, they sent Dari speaking translators um, to, a, to a Pashto speaking area, which probably probably tells a story <laughs> tells a story itself. Um, there's another another writer I've only recently stumbled upon to my eternal shame, Aim Césaire, I don't know if I'm saying the name correctly, um, who talks about, and I, I guess this connects with our World War II point, the connection between imperialism overseas and fascism at home. And, and it, he, he's arguing that there's a connection that, that um, fascism as we saw it in Europe um, was an expression of imperialism, come home to roost. Do you think there's some, do you agree with that analysis? Do you think there's something worth exploring there? Yeah, I mean, I would say that Aimé Césaire, Franz Fanon, Hannah Arendt, you know, these are all incredibly important mid-century intellectuals who are writing about this. And um, this idea that the that having a militaristic, oppressive regime abroad is, you know, the, the idea... That somehow that can happen, and then meanwhile, you know, there's wonderfully flourishing liberal democracy at home is clearly very romanticized. And, you know, we can point to, on a very, you know, mild level, perhaps, mild is quite the right word, but, you know, we could point to things like surveillance regimes and how clearly there are intersections between the kinds of ways in which, you know, British and American power have been exerted in the Middle East and Afghanistan over the last 20 years on the rise of different forms of surveillance at home. That would be just one example of this. Another one, obviously, I mean, this is not to the um, fascism point specifically, but the impacts of those wars, of course, are felt, and you will know this better than, than, than most anyone, you know, in the fact that we now have 20 years worth of veterans coming back who have been, you know, exposed to you know, really horrific kinds of conditions. And, you know, in the U.S., um, there's, a, there's a clear tie between the brutalization of a relatively, you know, a, the brutalization of a population of young women and men who, you know, were put into terrible circumstances, brought back into not great circumstances and are now being attracted in larger than average numbers to um, to far-right terrorism. I mean, not all by any means, but, you know, we can see a connection here. It's being documented. So that's another of the various links that we need to think about. And then, you know, I mean, I just think that the, the you know, back to the point about sort of national myths, you know, that that if you're trumpeting a vision of your nation as being able to, you know, do all of these great things abroad, and, and that's a very, uh, how to put it, I mean, it's a rosy vision, it's a flawed vision in the sense that it's only partial, um, but it's it, it, it foments nationalism at home, 
you know, nationalism at home can take all kinds of other ex- expressions. So, so I'll just conclude this particular thought with the with a reference to the term jingoism. Right, jingoism yes. is a term that comes out of um, you know later nineteenth century British overseas um, intervention. In that particular instance, it was about fighting with Russia. But but you know, what does jingo jingoism mean to us? It means you know it evokes on the one hand this kind of fervent desire to uh, you know go off and you know beat the foreigners and you know all of that kind of thing abroad. But it also manifestly contains within it this kind of white, you know, xenophobic sort of sensibility that you can imagine taking on a life of its own in the domestic context. Sure, sure. I, um, I reread um, uh, Psychology of Jingoism by, uh, I think it's J.A. Hobson, a problematic character in his own, his own ways often. But um, yeah, he talks about that and he talks about the mentality of the mob. It's not the, it's not the patriotism of the soldier. It's the, it's the kind of patriotism of the mob, the guy who puts the boot in when the opponent is down. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? And he talks a lot about people like Rhodes, uh, Cecil Rhodes in South Africa and anti-Boer feeling and the, the kind of the fevered nature of that, the potent nature of that as it was going on in his own lifetime. Um, I just wanted to to come to another question here because, of course, the, the podcast is about memory and there's a question about how can we, you've touched on it a little bit, but how can we remember empire? It's such a strange question. How can we remember better um, empire and how can we deal with its, with its consequences and its realities? Well, clearly a first step is to stop spinning the myths and to actually have proper education about this. I mean, I teach in the United States and um, was educated in the U.S., so I don't have a formation of kind of going through British schools. But I do every year have British students who come into my classes and they say, we never learned imperial history in school. And so it's really only in your class by coming to the United States to take a class on imperial history that they actually get anything like a kind of treatment, sustained treatment of this. I mean, leaving aside, you know, the kind of valence of whatever it is, you know, of, of how I teach it, just the fact of it is, is new to them. So, so that's clearly an important step. I mean, I just find it amazing that, you know, for example, when I began my graduate studies in the late 90s, there was a so-called new imperial history. And what was new about it at that time was that historians were working to show how what happened in the empire and what happened in Britain itself were interconnected. Well, you know, within scholarship, serious scholarship, that is now not so new anymore, right? I mean, we all know that, but it's incredible to me that here we are in the 2020s and still in the popular, in the public sphere, you know, in terms of, you know, public education, et cetera, these kinds of insights have just not been incorporated into the education. So that's really, you know, I think that would be at the foundation of it. And then, of course, there's another dimension which would have to do with public history, by which I mean, you know, memorials and exhibitions and that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm very much in favor of the reckonings that have been um, undertaken by entities such as the National Trust. Um, And I think that a, uh, you know, a more consistent and coherent set of ways in which the imperial connections sort of within even British country houses or let alone, of course, statues in public squares, those imperial connections, getting them excavated and explained and presented, I think is a really important kind of next step. Um, You've been so succinct, Professor, that I've gone through all my questions already. So I guess we should should call, call it a day there, but I just want to thank you 
for coming on. It's been fantastic to have you on. Of a real, course. A real pleasure. Thank you. For, we'll let you get back to your day. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. This has been Series 3 of the Warrior Nation podcast. We'd like to thank our guest, Maya Jasanoff. The show was produced and edited by Forces Watch and recorded at Liverpool Podcast Studio. Our music is from Ession Noise. I'm Joe Glenton, and thanks for listening.